When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We look at the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is July 7. Well, just ahead, gas prices are nearing all-time record highs. So what does that mean for refiners like Philips 66? And we'll look at the maker of a novel overdose drug and a new risk of overdoses. And Sterling Partners Equity Advisors Chief Investment Officer Kevin Silverman joins us. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you're like so many of our listeners, you're listening to the show every day, and it's a lot easier if you subscribe and download every show, hit that follow button, make sure you don't miss a single episode. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to do the business stories behind Stocks and the Move. Joining me, as always, our editor extraordinaire, Ben Wilson. Thanks, Corey. It's a lot of fun to do this with you. I'm enjoying it. I like having you on the mic. All right, Corey, tell me the three most important developments in the world of business today. All right, let's get to it. Well, the three most important business stories of this. Number one, the OPEC standoff continues. And there's a really big change afoot. So OPEC still has yet to announce their production targets, uh, which, you know, everyone from Saudi Arabia to Russia tends to generally follow. But there's a big change going on right now. The United Arab Emirates uh, has a very different strategy, apparently, it's coming out and leaks from these meetings, where they're actually concerned about how long the world is going to use oil. They have some of the largest untapped reserves of oil. And uh, apparently what they are telling people is that they, get, they think they better sell it now, pump as much oil on the ground as they can because they see an oil-free future and they don't want that to be a UAE-free future. It's a different view than any of the major uh, uh, com- countries in OPEC have uh, followed in the past, certainly very different than what Saudi Arabia wants to do, which is restrict the amount of oil into the world, keep the prices high, and keep selling oil. UAE is worried that they won't be able to do this forever, that if they don't sell the oil now, we could have a oil-free future as we move more and more towards renewables, such as geothermal, wind, and solar. Very big change, really interesting. Uh, and it, we hear echoes of this in all the companies that we talk about in the show where they're so concerned now about ESG and about the environmental cost of their business practices. UAE is concerned about it as well. I'm surprised they're the only ones that seem to be taking this position. I'd imagine everybody should be looking at the potential for an oil-free or oil-reduced at least future. Yeah, I mean, it cuts both ways, right? You could see, you'd think the people who have the most to lose would be the most concerned about it. On the other hand, all of their lives, they have lived with this global demand for their oil. It's probably hard for them to imagine a world that's any different than that. All right, story number two, very important. Minutes of the Federal Reserve meeting came out today. Now, I think we... Let, this kind of gets glossed over sometimes in the business press without we, we realize what we're seeing. What we're really seeing here 
is what did the Fed want to hint at? What were the notes from their meetings? We know what their decision was, but we really do get some insight into what they saw. And what they saw was an economy that's coming back a lot faster than they expected. Um, and so the the slowdown and the massive bond buying that the, the Fed has been engaged in uh, for the last year, they expected to get to an economic place where they would slow that down much later. And now they're saying it's going to come a little bit sooner. There were a number of participants in the meetings who said these conditions are uh, on the horizon and, again, happening faster than they expected. I think it shows how fast this economy is really coming back. All right, and finally, the third most important business story of the day, former President Donald Trump has filed a lawsuit, a case, uh, a class action lawsuit where he is the head of the class uh, suing Facebook, Twitter, and Google, trying to get his online profile back online after he was suspended from most social media platforms after the January 6th riots in the Capitol. And, uh, you know, we were probably close, very close to having members of Congress killed, certainly attacked. Um, and President uh, Trump uh, pulled offline. He wants to sue to get back online uh, and has filed a, a suit uh, saying it's a violation of his First Amendment rights in a U.S. District Court in Miami, also naming Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Sundar Pakai of, of Alphabet, Google, and uh, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg in the suit. I think what's really important here, Ben, is this is not just about those companies and about his, as much as we have all enjoyed the, the Donald Trump tweets over the last few years, but uh, this is a fundraising deal, right? The, the, the Facebook fundraising, the ability to do fundraising, targeting users on Google and Facebook and to a lesser degree Twitter, that is a very big part of um, uh, the presidential uh, funding, presidential election funding uh, for President Trump, former President Trump. And um, that's why he wants to get back online because he wants access to that money. All right, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, let's start with Phillips 66. Phillips 66 trades with the ticker PSX. Shares were down 2% today, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 28%. What's the story with Phillips 66? Do you, do you know why it's called Phillips 66? I, I, I love, um, I'd love to I think it's today. because this it's on Route 66, <laughs> but... It's tied to Route 66. So at one point, they had a gas formulation that would let your vehicle get up to 66 miles an hour on Route 66. And that is why this company became known as Philip 66. Well, look, we are hitting some really go. high gas prices, even by the standards set most summers. According to AAA today, uh, the national average gas price is $3.14. Where I am here in Northern California, I had the great joy of filling up the other day at $4.31. You wanted to get your fancy uh, premium gasoline for your fancy premium car. It's four sixty-two right now. And, uh, do you know what a crack spread is, Ben? It's a very important term I in do not. refining and oil and gas. It is the difference between the cost of the raw oil and then the, the distilled stuff that you sell. And crack spreads are quite high right now. They're at about 50 cents per gallon, um, much higher than they were last year, certainly, but higher than they are historically. A 50 cent per gallon uh, profit for the refiners is really high because demand for gasoline in particular, uh, as opposed to things like jet fuel and other distillates, gasoline is really high right now. Now, business travel has not returned, so the amount of, well, domestic travel seems to have really picked up. Business travel is still lagging uh, the numbers of 2019, but gasoline demand is, is right through the roof, higher than it was in 2019. And uh, I thought it was really interesting to listen to what they had to say at Phillips 66 uh, in their last uh, meeting with investors a couple of weeks ago. 
Here's CEO Greg Garland. I think, you know, you think about the story of transportation fuel demand is, is really followed COVID vaccination rates and reopening of economies. And, and clearly, you know, as we've come into the summer, we, we've seen demand improve. There's no question that there's been, you know, strong fundamentals. Probably on the gasoline side, we're starting to approach 2019 levels. This dissolute, we're probably at 2019 levels. You know, air travel still down relative to 2019, although domestic travel is, is up particularly for rec- recreation, business travel still off some, as you would say. And then, you know, when you think about international air travel, that's still off. And so you, know, you think through each one of those, those segments. But as we were coming into the, the summer season, I think our expectation was operating rates would, would improve as, as demand improved and pulled those rates up. And indeed, we've seen that. So we're, we're watching inventory balances. You know, we're running about where the DOEs were, so call it, you know, kind of the low 90% utilization at, at PSX, and we're not seeing inventories really stack up. And so, so they're not seeing inventories stack up. Um, they're, seeing, they're, they're selling everything they can. They're making everything that they can. And we are at record levels with gasoline. And I think that, and again, with the crack spread so high, they're able to take a lot of price here. And I think that we can expect gas prices to kind of stay high because of what they're seeing. And again, the, we haven't even seen all of the demand come back yet. Uh, it, we'll see if business travel ever does come back, right? Zoom may be the inhibitor to that, but these guys are selling a lot of gasoline and making a lot of money doing so. Corey, one of the things I always enjoy on this podcast is hearing the perspective of CEOs sharing, we're not doing well, but of course we expected that. And it sounds like that's exactly what he's trying to say. We're not doing well, but, you know, we expected that and trying to make it sound okay. Yeah, well, I think in this case, actually, they are doing really well, though. I think that the numbers they're putting out are really strong. Um, and they're profiting from the, the rebound of the economy. Makes sense to me. Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to look at a little company. Uh, we usually don't go this small, but I think it's just super interesting. Company's called Opiant Pharmaceuticals. It's got about a less than $100 million market cap, but interesting business. Opiant Pharmaceuticals, Inc. So that trades with the ticker OPNT. Shares were up 21% today. And for the last 12 months, shares are up 76%. What's the story with Opiate Pharmaceuticals, Inc.? Inc. Yes. Well, uh, these guys make the stuff that uh, helps uh, save the lives of overdosing drug addicts. Um, now, we obviously know there's a huge problem. Projections from the Center of Disease Control Prevention said there were probably 69,000 opiate overdoses in the 12 months through the end of November last year. Uh, 80% or 56,700 of those deaths were from synthetic opioids, particularly fentanyl. Um, uh, in 2017, the, the, um, uh, the NIH reached out to companies that we need something to help with these overdoses and help uh, EMTs and so on reverse the overdoses. Uh, and this company responded and they got some uh, top line results today from a test that they're doing of one of their, their uh, molecules called uh, OPNT003. It's a nasal opiate overdose uh, spray that revives someone who has OD'd, uh, particularly from very, very strong um, synthetic uh, opioids, that is uh, fentanyl. Um, and this seemed to have some really strong results. So they're going to do another study and a bigger study. They hope to have final results next year, but this is seen as really good news for the company. But I, what I thought was so interesting was they talked about in their last conference call, last meeting with investors, I should say, about another growth potential for this company, acute cannabinoid overdoses. So people, the, with the increasing legalization of cannabis across the country, there's an increase in the number of people who are ODing 
on cannabinoid uh, products. I didn't think that was such a big thing, but listen to CEO Dr. Roger Crystal. Yeah, so acute cannabinoid overdose is a, is a medical emergency. And we think, uh, according to our analysis, uh, um, taking on board what's available publicly, that last year there was probably at least 1.5 to 1.7 million hospital admissions ER through the ER relating to cannabis. And when we talk about acute cannabinoid overdose, it's the essentially a psychotic presentation of a patient um, through toxicity of cannabinoids. A lot of that's coming from edibles. In fact, probably the majority of that is coming from edibles, where you don't know how much THC is in there, and people typically don't wait to, to, to the feeling of getting high. They take too much. And the other part of that is coming from uh, um, what we call synthetic cannabinoids, such as K2 and spice. So although it doesn't kill you like an opioid overdose, it's particularly dangerous, and the growth of that is coming with increasing legalization. So we expect to see a lot more um, um, cannabinoid overdoses relating to edibles. There's no, nothing else on the market at the moment. So patients, they get brought into the ER, they may be given sedation. Uh, they frequently require admission into hospital for inpatient care, and it can take hours, but often days for them to come around. So if you have a medicine that can be given in the ER as an injection, it doesn't require the patient to comply with taking something orally, um, and you can bring them around quickly and send them home, and we think that could be very important. And that's where we see that growing opportunity. So I, I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing and probably a growing thing. Um, whether or not this company can actually treat that stuff is a whole other question, but but it was an interesting perspective of a growing problem. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Smart Global Holdings. Smart Global Holdings. It trades with the ticker SGH. Shares were up a whopping 18%. But for the last 12 months, shares are up 109%. What's the story with Smart Global Holdings? Well, these guys, it, it's an interesting company um, that's really the merger of a couple of other companies that have been around the tech world for a long time. Um, these guys make electronics for computing, memory, specialty LED solutions after the acquisition of Cree, an LED maker out of North Carolina. Um, and they do application-specific products for you know, big businesses, government, original uh, equipment manufacturers and other sales channels, it's computing, it's edge computing, it's high performance computing, it's communications and storage and networking and mobile and automation of, of industrial stuff, internet of things, as well as military and yes, lighting. Uh, they reported a quarter today that was just fantastic. $438 million in sales, an increase of 56% compared to the period last year, the same quarter last year. And uh, what was interesting to me was the comments from CEO Mark Adams where he talked about the biggest indicator about how well smart global holdings is going to do is really the storage and how much we're seeing uh, just this increased storage of digitization of everything from Snapchat videos to podcasts online. Uh, on the storage growth, just the amount of data uh, being stored and generated um, is staggering continues to be, uh, you know, kind of something that's uh, forecasting broader sector growth. And that's just true for uh, uh, SSDs as well as even if you look at the hard drive numbers and what mm -hmm. likes of Seagate and Western Digital are forecasting. So the yeah. data explosion in, in the market is just validated and we think it continues. 
on the storage piece. So yeah, so storage driving everything else uh, when it comes to digitization, and these guys are seeing the benefits of that um, when they're dealing with all their customers, uh, especially in the cloud. All right, well, coming up next, we're going to talk to Sterling Partners Equity Advisors uh, Chief Investment Officer Kevin Silburn, one of our favorite guests with a look at a really interesting company. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drilldownpod. Link up with the Business Podcast Network on LinkedIn and check out our website, bizpod.net, to let us know what stocks you think we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. We are joined by Kevin Silverman, who brings an interesting company to us, uh, a new one to me, certainly Atlas Technical. Um, Kevin, uh, glad to have you joining us. First of all, tell us about your firm, Thank you. uh, Kevin, so people can get the context. Uh, Sterling Partners is a uh, middle market private equity firm in Chicago. We're a sister entity doing public equities in Chicago. Small cop values are focused. We've got a 20-year top decile track record in small cap value. We run institutional portfolios. Yeah, and small cap value has been a tortured segment by the market for some time, but there's there's some... uh, um, it's going to feel good to go at night knowing that your names are worth more than what you paid for them and you're not relying on some greater fool to come in there and, and get involved. I always felt that way about value. You know, I go to sleep hoping something good happens tomorrow, and if it doesn't, I'm okay. The growth guy goes to bed hoping nothing bad happens tomorrow, and uh, I think I sleep better, absolutely. Although it's been a tough decade, Corey, for value, as you know, and uh, I think that may be about to change, I will say. And it's also been tough for, you know, my old world of short sellers, too. It's the same thing. It seems that nothing matters uh, when it comes to fundamentals sometimes when you want to bang your head against a wall. But uh, Alice yep. Technical does have some interesting positive technicals. Why don't you tell me about how this business is supposed to work? Well, it's an interesting company, not the kind I usually get involved with. This is a SPAC, so poof, it's a company, blank check company. It was formed in 2017 for the purpose of affecting a merger. So again, that's an odd sort of situation. I got interested recently because all of the um, the pieces have come together. So back in 2017, they formed a blank check company. In 2018, they went public and raised a bunch of money. It wasn't until February 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, that they used that capital to buy something called, not surprisingly, Atlas Technical Consultants. And then they renamed themselves Atlas Technical Consultants in a reverse merger. Now, this is the kind of company that when you have a giant infrastructure project, you can imagine they cost billions and billions of dollars. Everybody wants to get paid. And before you get paid, you need someone to inspect it to make sure it's up to snuff. And that's where these guys come into play. The thing that's so fascinating to me, and there was another company like this years ago called US Delivery, where you took a bunch of regional, very strong firms in their own areas, and you put them together 
together, created a national sales force, and then you filled up uh, the regions with those formerly local companies. And then you're also in a position to do a roll up and increase the advantage you have as a national presence. And they're right at the front end of this, Corey. So that that's what gets me excited about it. So one of the, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm always professing to not be interested in the financing structures of these companies. In fact, I'm fascinated by them. I just think that what's most important <laughs> is the business underneath them, right? Now, but but mm -hmm. with a spec, one of the things we've we've learned to look for the ticking time bombs of insiders' ability to sell. Presumably, this looks a little cleaner than some of the other deals we've seen, where you've got the sponsors or the the pipe investors or the insiders who have these. Uh, if the stock holds up, if the stock appreciates even a little, they can suddenly dump a ton of shares on the market, which can be punishing not just to the stock, but it may suggest that the purpose of the company was to be a stock not to be a functioning business. I mean, I think that's a, a fair comment. In this case, that is all behind us. So um, the thing that I think is intriguing from here is all that messy capital structure stuff, two classes of warrants, several preferreds, excessive interest costs, all that has all been cleaned up as of earlier this month. So there is a big piece of debt. It's very clean though. It's, it's 450 million, it's LIBOR plus, three and a half to five. It's not super cheap, but they've got a super clean capital structure now. The selling shareholders have largely been taken out. Um, you know, it, it started the current CEO, Joe Boyer, came out of Shaw Environmental. He also did a stint with Bernard Capital, the PE firm that's orchestrated all this. And I think at this point, um, their debt to capital is a bit high. So debt to EBITDA is a normal, you know, leverage measure is now at about seven times, which I would say I don't like whatsoever traditionally. But the business is so stable and they've got a path toward accretive acquisitions that I think the CFO targets three times debt to EBITDA. That's three years away. And I think this can sell in the 15 times EBITDA range, which to me is about a 6% cash on cash return and with low risk um, in terms of their market share and the stability of infrastructure build, I think it's um, a, a good opportunity out ahead of us. So let's talk specifically about what these guys do. They, they lump it all together as, as technical services, which could be anything. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, this, it sounds like something the CIA would have set up, right? We do technical yeah, services and they critical infrastructure, have. but they, Materials engineering, environmental services, construction equality assurances, disaster recovery and response. What ties this all together? What ties it together is they go in and make sure that work has been done properly to spec. And they've sourced uh, their staff from all the largest engineering and construction firms. So they've in effect pulled off people who are career experts in the companies that are building the infrastructure. And now they're on the side of judging whether it's been done correctly and up to spec. And, uh, and so it's very stable in that regard in that all the infrastructure projects do need to be inspected in order to get paid. And these guys are evolving to be the largest company that is dedicated to that effort. So they will inspect anything. And that's why you see a very broad range of skills and inside a very broad range of skills within the people that they have uh, in their company. The, so basically these are the guys with the clipboards who come in and see if the work got done right. Hard hat may or may not be included depending on what they're checking up on. 
but they're essentially quality yeah. assurance uh, inspectors for all kinds of industries. Absolutely, quality. It's primarily environmental and big infrastructure. You can see it in their staffing. That's where the primary roles have been in the past for their people. But I think as they get bigger, bridges, highways, um, you know, um, and anything with environmental refineries, I think it, it's a big scope. Well, and, and you mentioned that. If, you know, one of the things that's interesting about um, the infrastructure uh, opportunities that may become available if we do indeed get an infrastructure bill out of Congress um, and from the White House is that um, uh, it takes a long time to get qualified to do government work. You have to go through a, a, a long process, ostensibly a rigorous process, to make sure that you can do the work that is necessary and get in with those other contractors. These guys are already there. Uh, when I look through their annual report, uh, the most recent, they've got 50% of the revenues already from government-based business, and that didn't get any worse with COVID. No, no, it did not. In fact, uh, a nice statistic that I like is 95% of their revenues come from relationships that they've had over the last decade. 90% this year came from things that they've had in the last five years. So it's a lot of repeat business from very, very large entities. And those high level relationships, I think, will give us confidence that even with that high debt level, it's not how high your debt is. It's what is the risk that you won't be able to cover it. And in this case, the security of their business, I think, is high enough to warrant that type of uh, capital structure, which is unusual. But that's what I think is so interesting in this case. Now, I mentioned the driver, the obvious driver of potential infrastructure bill. Um, if these guys are in the back end of a project, or well, I should ask that question. Are they at the back end of a project, which is when they get to do the work saying, yep, this bridge has three lanes. Good work. Move on. <laughs> or, do they, are, or are they there throughout the process and working as soon as the money comes into a project, they're working? Well, they are there throughout the process to stop any mistakes early on. You know, you'd hate to find out the lane is not wide enough for the truck at the end. So you want to make sure that's happening along the way. But the, the big checks come at the end, but they're involved the whole way. And it's cost plus pricing. So they're going to get paid along the way. That's the other element I like. They have a lot of debt, but they're not going to have any money losing projects because it's cost plus. And you see that in the stability of their margin which is 15% EBITDA right around along the, the path, which to me indicates a cost plus scenario when you have such a stable margin. Um, and so, um, you know, right now they've got about a 15% margin. I think in that environment, we can count on well, that. Well, better than 15%, right? I mean, they boast, I mean, you know, you, I'm, I'm sure you love adjusted EBITDA as little as I do, but they're, they <laughs> boast of an adjusted EBITDA margin to 17.5%, which is notably better. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm rounding. But yes, let's hope they can maintain that. But it's stable enough that I, I get a feeling that cost plus is what's delivering that. Usually in cost plus in government work, it's limited to single digits and it's in the contract. That's not the case here? Um, well, they're showing an EBITDA margin. So you hope that their definition in the contract does end up in a single digit number. So it's not a target to decline. I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, when you look at their ability to, to grow, I mean, are there a lot of small businesses out there for them to find like this? Some companies are good at mergers, others are not. 
Well, part of their strategy is to go out and give an exit strategy to mom and pop firms all over the country. So right now they're in, uh, I think, about 15 states. Of course, they're in the bigger ones, Florida and California. They're not yet in Illinois. So I think the opportunity for them is to continue to bolt on acquisitions. They've got the infrastructure in place with the front office and the relationships. And so that is part of their plan. Part of it is uh, grow with the economy, grow with infrastructure programs, even if if you don't get the big bill, you are going to have infrastructure as a certain percentage of GDP, and that'll be fairly stable. And then if their uh, multiple obviously is higher than the sale price of their mom and pops, they're going to do accretive acquisitions, which, of course, will also help your uh, your growth rate and your EBITDA margin. So I think it's a it's a good runway for the next three to four years simply because they've just formed. The other thing I'd point out from a stock point of view, Corey, is that as you know, stock prices are supply and demand based. Ultimately, the, the marketplace doesn't care about my earnings estimate. It cares if somebody wants to buy the stock. And right now, this stock does not exist in any indices any um, ETFs. It's just so new. No analysts have even been willing to pick it up because it's too confusing. So I think that's all ahead of us. And we are going to get um, a bit more stable earnings. All the write-offs and unusual charges are now behind us. So I have a feeling we're going to get more analysts picking this up over the next four quarters as the numbers start to come in and are more stable. And that'll lead to well, more demand for the stock. And there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, mom and pop interest in infrastructure plays, quote unquote. Um, that's right where these guys sit. Um, I think so. Do they have to do a lot of acquisitions for this business to grow? Um, to grow where you might want it to be 15 times EBITDA, I think I think you will need acquisitions. And I think you will because their competitive advantage in financing costs will make it um, easy for them to go and do that. And there won't be a lot of alternate buyers for the exit strategy of some of the sellers. So I think that's a, an almost sure path. But if they don't get that, I think you're going to see, um, you know, you'll just see share gains in existing territories. And I would say you'll have 10% growth without acquisitions. You'll have, you know, 18 to 20 with acquisitions. Don't, don't and as you know, is that nobody in Wall Street pays any attention to because the analysts aren't there and they're not out asking for money because they're doing Constant, they're, you know, these constant money losers that are raising more money to build factories they haven't built for products that they've already announced. Wall Street loves those because they're always, they always need to do deals. And right, they cover right, them right. And they've got analysts covering them like crazy. Companies like this don't even show up on the map, even though it's a big company. That's true. And I think that uh, their lack of need for capital going forward uh, just makes it an opportunity to wait until this starts getting into indices, ETFs. Uh, it's going to get on people's radar from a valuation point of view. So that's all ahead of us in my point of view. And I feel lucky that this came to me. Um, we run screens. Uh, we don't screen out money losers. We don't screen out new companies. So you have to be uh, a little bit opportunistic to find these little gems. And here is one, I think. Uh, Kevin, you're a gem too. We so appreciate your time. Kevin Silverman joining us. Uh, thank you very much for your time and joining oh, us. Thank you down. so much, Corey. Pleasure with, to be with you. With Atlas Technical. Atlas Technical, interesting company indeed. Right, well, up next, the bite, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We told you that 50% of the business from Atlas Technical was from government. Well, what percentage of that is bridges and roads and transportation at writ large? We'll give you that percentage when the drill down continues. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. Hey, and do yourself, do everyone, do me a favor and go on to your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. Tell people what you think of the Drill Down Pod. Let other people know why they should be listening to this show. And heck, we hope you're listening every day. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Right, we are back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot, Kevin. Silverman is so kind to bring us Atlas Technical, give us a look at this interesting company that does have 50% of its revenues coming from government work. Pretty big deal with, this, uh, with the infrastructure plans afoot in Washington, D.C., not least of which because, and here's your bite, 38% of their business was in transportation already. we got to imagine this infrastructure bill is going to have hundreds of billions of dollars going just for transportation Really good news for Atlas Technical. They're already doing 38% of the government works in transportation. Do you have been listening to Drill Down? Isaac Webster is our executive producer. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.